Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Last week, Justin Bieber sold his back catalogue for a reported $200 million. This follows eye-watering sales for megastars like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen and Tina Turner. But why are music rights now the hottest assets on the planet? I want to know whether music royalties deserve a place in our portfolio. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is securitization? Okay, let's get into it. So Justin Bieber's back catalogue has sold for $200 million. Now that is a lot of money, Romin. And I think it's fair to say this is what we would call an alternative asset class. Am I right? Definitely. And this is the kind of movement beyond bonds and stocks into things which also have value, which is an interesting question in itself. You know, what has value? And the idea is that by moving into alternative assets, you've got something which is potentially uncorrelated to bonds and stocks. Mm, Interesting, because people always talk about a diversification bonus if you can find something that's not correlated to the major asset classes. But as we know, it's very difficult to do that. And often when things are said to be uncorrelated, it just takes a market shock to kind of make it clear that (laughs) actually it's not uncorrelated at all. That's what people say, isn't it? Correlations go to one in a crisis. Yeah, or minus one. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's the attraction of alternative asset classes. You're looking for something which is uncorrelated, which is fairly steady as a generator of total return. And music is a good example of that. Now, I used to work in the music industry. I came straight out of college and started a job at EMI Records, which at the time was one of the major labels, but uh, quickly stopped being one of the major labels. (laughs) (laughs) That's not because you worked there, was it, Mike? No, had very little to do with me. But then I worked for Universal Music. But I haven't worked in the music industry for over 10 years now, which is crazy, right? It seems like time's gone so fast. But the thing that was quite hard to get my head around when I started working in music is the legal situation around copyright and all the different rights and royalties that go behind it is actually really complicated and it underpins the value for all of these catalogues. So in terms of the actual ownership, I'd have thought it was fairly clear cut. You know, somebody writes a song, it's a big hit and they get rich and everything's fine. Is that how it works? Well, you sound like an investor in music catalogues. But <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, step back and say the basic top line situation here. So when you think about a song, There's two main different components. So firstly, you've got the songwriter who writes the lyrics maybe and the composition, but then you've also got what's called the master rights in the recording. Now that might be by the same person or it might not. So for example, someone like Taylor Swift writes her own songs, doesn't she? This is where it gets even more complicated because she writes some of the song, right? So she shares her songwriting credits with other people and the royalties get split. So there's this division between what's called publishing rights, which are to do with the songwriting and the composition, and master rights, which are to do with the actual sound recording itself. And then it gets even more complicated, because if we talk about songwriting and the publishing rights, that's split again between performance royalties. So you get money whenever it's played on radio, whenever it's performed at a live concert, that kind of thing, whenever you hear it in a cafe. And then there's mechanical royalties, which are to do with when the song is pressed onto a CD or a vinyl or even streamed online. So it's a complicated situation and that doesn't even capture everything because then you've got things called synchronization rights, which have become incredibly valuable, which is where a TV company or a film company or an advertiser comes to you and pays you a big slug of money to use your song in their advert or in their movie. And for a big artist, that has now become a huge revenue stream. So you've got all these different revenue streams And when you're thinking about the value of a song and a catalogue broadly, 
it becomes a question of weighing them all and how sustainable are they into the future. So let's say we've got a really complicated case where we've got a song that's really popular and very long lived, like Alleluia, which is written by Leonard Cohen originally. Yeah, that's a good example, because then it's been covered by people like Jeff Buckley and, like you say, lots of different cover versions which are successful in their own right. I know the version from Shrek, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So when that is performed or played on radio, there's money due to the original songwriter. So Leonard Cohen is earning from that, even if it's the Jeff Buckley version being played. Jeff Buckley, were he still alive, would also be earning through the master rights when it's streamed or pressed onto a CD. But in a way, that's not the most complicated example you can think of, because you come to a lot of tracks which are co-written or using samples. And I've seen it where you've got like a hip hop track, for instance, and it might have literally 40 different writers because they've used (laughs) samples and they all have, say, three writers. And you've built up a track with 10 different samples. Now you're into the dozens of writers. And interestingly, if you're getting to synchronization rights, where you're licensing it for an advert, for example, you need every single one of those writers or their publisher who controls the rights, to sign off and agree to it. It's a nightmare. (laughs) Because it's like herding cats, right, when you come to music artists. I could just see if you've got a rap band, then, you know, you're going to have a team of lawyers just screaming at them, you know, keep the number of people low. Well, it's interesting because a lot of songs actually get into legal disputes. You've seen it again and again. So some of that is they've used samples without them being cleared, is the terminology people use. You've heard in life people say, oh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? You've heard that phrase. In music, no. Ask for permission first or (laughs) your royalty is going to be held up for literally decades. (laughs) And then you get other cases where the big hit Blurred Lines by Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke, Marvin Gaye's estate sued them and said, oh, you've actually ripped off one of our songs from Marvin Gaye. And it went to court. And yeah, they were actually awarded a sum of $7.4 million because the jury said, yeah, this is similar enough to that original song that it's effectively a cover version. Funny anecdote, Marvin Gaye almost bought our house. Really? (laughs) Yeah, because we lived in LA. We had a nice house. It was in Beverly Hills. And this guy, he kind of put in an offer, but in the end, he wasn't interested. But it was a lovely house. You know, it's a nice place. Roman, there's so much I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) You living on Beverly Hills and hobnobbing with Marvin Gaye? Yeah, but you know, I mean, I wasn't interested in Beverly Hills. I was into astronomy and stuff. You know, I wasn't interested in film stars. Marvin Gaye died in 1984. Are you thinking of the right person? Yeah, that's where we lived in the house, you know, just before he died, actually. Wow. I thought this was the episode where I was going to have the better anecdotes, having worked (laughs) in the industry. You've just, like, outdone me. (laughs) But I wasn't interested in Marvin Gaye either, you know. I mean, I like classical music, you know, so it wasn't really exciting for me. Oh, you like music that's, like, 400 years old? Yeah. Which is, interestingly, out of copyright. So that kind of brings (laughs) us on to the nice question of copyright, which underpins everything here. So what is copyright? So the way I understand it, it's a kind of government-granted monopoly. You know, if you produce something, then they kind of protect your rights for a certain period of time. Yeah, I think that's the best way of looking at it. And how long does it last? Well, for songwriters, it's 70 years after an author's death. So if you think about a song generating cash flows year after year, and it can go on for someone's entire life, and then another 70 years, well, you're pretty close to a perpetual bond there, really, aren't you? It's very close. Yeah, 70 years is definitely up there. And I was looking, actually, this morning, I looked at the most popular songs in 1952, which are the ones which are just about to go out of the 70-year period. And I only recognised one of the artists, and that was Vera Lynn. (laughs) Yeah. So that's interesting. You're talking about the master copyright there, which only lasts 70 years from when it was first published. 
whereas the songwriting is 70 years after the death of the author. And interestingly, it's the death of the last author on there. So kind of like the last man standing. So what you've seen actually now is people claiming to write songs with their son, who's like five years old, because <laughs> you'll get another, you know, lifetimes of copyright out of it. That's clever, especially for your family. Yeah, because that's what a lot of these catalogue sales are in a way. Why would Bob Dylan sell his whole catalogue of songs to Universal Music? Well, I think a big part of it is legacy and estate planning. I always assumed it was because they wanted an extension built on their house or they just needed the cash for something. But I think that's obviously one reason why people would flog their catalogues to get like a huge slug of money in the door. But it's interesting that it's generally older artists that are doing it. You know, your Bob Dylan's, your Bruce Springsteen's, Sting, I know, sold his back catalogue. The exception is Justin Bieber, right, who's only 28. But then he's encountered a lot of health problems and has had to stop touring. And I think maybe he's thinking, uh, it's be a good time to actually sort of cash out. So if you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to have any more big hits, then, you know, that's the time when you kind of step back and say, time to sell my back catalogue. So is that a kind of negative sign, do you think, for an artist? If they suddenly start to talk about cashing in, they just think that the best is behind them. Well, it's only his back catalogue. So anything new he creates, he'll still, you know, go through the usual process of owning a share of the rights. Is it a negative sign? I guess it is in a way, or it's a sign of being clever if you're doing it at a time when valuations are at their peak. (laughs) Or interest rates are very low. Yeah. Do you think this whole phenomenon is part of the zero interest rate era? I think that's a big part of it. You know, that's true of anything. You know, valuations went up for anything which generates profits in the future. So I think, you know, if, if interest rates carry on staying high, which I think is very likely, or at least much higher than they were, then that's going to be bad news for this industry as well as many others. But can you ever sell all of your future productions or anything you ever write in future? Does anyone ever do that? Well, in a way, that's what a recording contract and a publishing contract is. So you sign a deal with a record label and it says, oh, you're going to give us your next five albums. We're going to give you a million pounds up front. You have to deliver them by this date. We make commitments around marketing. You make commitments around promotion and touring. And yeah, you're taking an advance is what it's called. Money up front for delivering product later. And then they basically own your stuff for a fixed period of time, probably. Yeah. So in the case of the master recording, the record label owns it, generally owns it outright, which has been a big dispute, right? So a lot of artists want to get their master rights back. I say back, but they never owned them in the first place. So Taylor Swift actually bucked the trend here. So what she did when she fell out with Scooter Braun and her record label, who owned all her masters, she said, well, I'm the songwriter in a large part here. What I can do is just re-record all of my albums, create new masters, and then I'll own the new masters. (laughs) Did it work? Now, usually record labels have contracts which kind of prohibit that kind of stuff, but there's like loopholes. And Taylor Swift's in this position now where she's done that. And is encouraging fans, listen to these new ones I've recorded. Forget the old original versions. Well, surely the company is not too happy about that. I don't imagine he is. But I think Scooter Braun actually sold the master rights on and got ahead of the game. But it's interesting. Like you say, we think of this as a creative industry, but so much of it is lawyers and accountants. (laughs) So we're talking about two different types of company here, aren't we? We're talking about companies that buy back catalogues and we've got companies which buy current artists. So I guess it's kind of like seed capital from venture capital companies versus mezzanine capital for someone that's already established. Is there a kind of analogy there? I think so. 
So the traditional record labels, Universal Music, Sony, Warner, these big titans who do something called A&R, Artist and Repertoire, where they sign new acts, they try and build them up, they promote them, they try and make them the next megastars. They're quite dismissive of these new companies that are coming along and buying out big legacy act catalogs. So like Hypnosis Songs, which you'll come on to in a bit. And I think I've heard the phrase used where they just call them checkbook publishers. (laughs) (laughs) And yet from an investment point of view, you probably think, well, you know, the safer company is the mezzanine capital, you know, the stuff which buys established catalogs. You'd think so, because how do you value a catalog, right? Let's say Bob Dylan walks through our door and says, I'm looking to sell. How would you go about thinking, what offer can I make to Bob Dylan? But the way I think about it is, is Bob Dylan going to stay popular? So will people still be listening to his songs in 20 years? And I think they probably will. You know, some of them are, you know, real bangers. <laughs> That's the case. <laughs> bangers. I don't know if anyone's ever said that about Bob Dylan, but I agree. They are. I think, yeah, that's what I think about. You know, how long is he going to stay popular? How popular is he right now? Then you'll get a kind of decay of the cash flows over time, I suspect, as he gets older and less relevant to people nowadays. So like you say, the key is the cash flows, right? And typically how I believe it's done in the industry when you're looking at an artist's back catalogue is you'll take an average of their royalty income over, say, the last five, seven years, whatever you can get your hands on. And then you'll basically offer some multiple of that in simple terms. So for a major artist who's got a long history of being successful and you've got stable cash flows over time, like Bob Dylan, it can even go up to something like 20 or 25 times as a multiple, which seems high, right? I'll tell you another thing that would worry me is that nowadays you've got this thing called cancel culture. And what if Bob Dylan suddenly came out and said something which was somehow perceived to be, you know, not popular? immediately he could go from someone that's quite popular to someone that's kind of repudiated and people would boycott his music. So I think that would be another thing I'd consider, which is the kind of risk of curtailment of the cash flows. Yeah. And I think it's kind of analogous to the idiosyncratic risk when you're thinking about equity in a specific stock. Like what could go wrong for that specific company? Now, yeah, like you say, you could have a scandal. I'm thinking of someone like Michael Jackson here. Now his catalogue is still really valuable but probably a lot less than it was before, you know, the revelations and the documentary after he died. And there's other examples. So you could have an artist who is very creative, but is willing to sacrifice commercial return for their integrity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do see a lot of this. So for example, Neil Young is very outspoken. He got into a feud with Spotify when they were promoting the Joe Rogan podcast. And he had people on there talking about being anti-vax. And I think Neil Young pulled all his music off Spotify, which he had the rights to do. Now, if you're the publisher owning Neil Young's catalogue, you're probably tearing your hair out. (laughs) I imagine. So the analogy here is really strong with something like a credit portfolio, where ideally you want seasoned credits. These are companies that have been around for a while, have been around the block, and you kind of know that these bonds are going to be okay. So you have seasoned credits and you diversify across different issuers. So it's kind of like a credit portfolio in a way. Yeah, I can see that. Some of the companies that are getting into buying catalogues over the last five years, like Hypnosis, they're doing exactly that. They're building a portfolio of lots of different successful artists, knowing that one or two are either just going to become unpopular over time, their music's not going to be passed from generation to generation. And then, yes, some of them are going to become unpopular for less savoury reasons, probably. It is the music industry after all. (laughs) (laughs) And if I was going to go for the kind of unicorn approach where I'm going to try and find a company that's really good at identifying new stars, 
Are there any companies that are just unbelievably good at that, who just, you know, go to really awful pubs in London and, you know, with sticky floors and uh, really few people in them, and yet manage to find these incredible artists? And I think that's how it was done, all the way from Buddy Holly up until the 2000s, right? You'd be going to open mic nights, you'd be bringing in the little bands through your door, and you'd be taking a punt on them. But now I don't think so. Now it's on artists themselves to build a following through social media, like everything else, and then get plucked from there often. And unfortunately, things like talent shows, you know, the pipeline is different, I think. I mean, to come back to Justin Bieber, who we talked about right at the start, I believe in 2007, he built up a following on YouTube and was then sort of discovered by Scooter Braun, this figure in the music industry. And it went from there, right? And are there any examples of someone that turned down a really popular artist because they thought they weren't good enough and must be kicking themselves because of it? I mean, the most famous example of that is Dick Rowe, who famously had the Beatles audition for him and then said, nah, not for me. Oh, no. <laughs> You've got to regret that. But I think we talked about it before, but then, you know, he did go on to sign the Rolling Stones. So it's <laughs> not oh, so well, bad. That's fair enough. But imagine that. He could have had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Oh, my signed God. Signed the two most successful acts ever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a lot of what we've talked about here is that idiosyncratic risk around specific artists. But if you're the acquirer of a big catalogue, there are definitely other risks, aren't there? Now, I remember, when was it? It was roughly in the 2000s, wasn't it? When we had Napster come along and, you know, everybody thought it was OK to rip music and just kind of swap it with their friends. And everyone was talking about how the business model was basically broken for the recording industry because it was built on the idea that it was impossible to copy music, that every time you copied it, there'd be a loss in quality. Yeah, the music industry went through such a big change and was in a really long bear market if you look at the overall revenues of the industry. So even in 2019 and 2020, revenue for the music industry was below where it was in 1999. And in fact, 2021, based on the figures I've seen, was the first year that it's got back above its previous peak. So it's taken 20 years. And was that because of piracy? Was it because people were just siphoning off profits by kind of just stealing music? I think there was a few things at play. That was a big part of it. So, you know, in the 90s, record labels could kind of print money, right? You charge (laughs) £15 for a CD. The production cost of that is minimal. You'd spend a lot on marketing, obviously, and compensating the artist because it is genuinely such a risky business. For every 10 acts you sign and promote, maybe one will be successful. And to what level of success? It's a really spiky industry. Even now that you could, say, publish stuff on YouTube and become immensely popular. I mean, if someone's got a million YouTube hits on one of their videos, you know that's going to be a pretty good artist to sign up, presumably. Yeah, but I think people have got their way before you, right? (laughs) Okay. It's like being a football scout. You've got to sign them at like eight years old. (laughs) But to go back to what actually happened to the music industry. So yeah, piracy was obviously a big issue. But also, even when legal alternatives came on, so iTunes was the big one, what we saw there was a disaggregation of music. And what do I mean? So previously, you'd buy an album, it would cost £15, it would have two songs you like on it, but you're still paying £15. Once iTunes came along, and you could pick and choose, you're selling two songs for one pound each or whatever it is, rather than 15 pounds. So that's a big change. And the other thing was the industry was super complicated, like I mentioned at the start, in terms of rights and royalties. And there'd been a lack of investment, I think, in like the infrastructure. So we mentioned all these different royalty streams. Well, how does that money actually get to you when it's played on the radio, when you hear it in a hairdresser's? How does that money get into the pocket of the music publisher and then the songwriter? 
Well, there are these big administrative bodies called collecting societies, and their job is to take all the music and license it to people who want to use the music. So if you're a cafe, you buy a license from PRS and you can play whatever you want in your cafe. If you're a radio station, get a license. And then these collecting societies, so in the UK, it's the Performing Rights Society, bring all this money in. They have the big database of who owns every song, and then they pay it on. But the databases have never been that great. In the UK, they're pretty good now. But around the world, mm, less so. If your music's been played in a cafe in South America, is that money going to get to you? <laughs> and how long is it going to take? <laughs> right? That's always the question. So if a radio station plays a song, they have to report that to the PRS in the UK, for example. So it depends on the radio station. Your big stations, you know, like BBC One, BBC Radio Two, yeah, they literally report every song they play. And if you want a sense of the income, a single play on BBC Radio Two what would be the equivalent number of streams on Spotify, say, for a songwriter to earn the same amount of money as one play on Radio 2? Mm, I'd say probably 100, 200,000 people listen to it, maybe even more. Roman, you've got it spot on. 200,000. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good guess. Yeah, very good. <laughs> but I bet they're just hoping that the DJ is going to play their song. So yeah, if you're a big radio station, you're literally reporting every song you play. If you're a smaller one, a local radio station it's done on a sample basis so they might sample 90 days for example across the year and if your song happens to get played on one of those days woohoo! <laughs> it's like it's prorated up to being played many times more than it was how about a nightclub i mean if they play a song how does that work yeah so they should generally be reporting every single song and that's why it gets really complicated right because all the live gigs that happen around the world the set lists from them have to be submitted to the local copyright collecting society. And then when the artist has just scribbled down, oh, I played a song called Sorry, without any more detail, the collecting societies are like trying to match it in their database. I've got 50,000 songs called Sorry. <laughs> Which one did you play? And so there's a lot of money that just doesn't flow through. It's getting better all the time, but there's been a big focus on it. So we're talking about reasons why the music industry struggled. Piracy, the big one disaggregation, the second one, but then just this really boring thing about administration and getting the money from the customers all the way to the rights holders. So if I look at the graph of music industry revenues, this is a period covering 1999 to 2021. It's interesting that it's just falling from 1999 to 2014, and then suddenly it stages a massive comeback. So what happened in 2014? Well, that is really when streaming became popular and premium streaming was monetizable. So if you look at the graph and it's broken down into different sections, you see that physical sales have declined from almost the entire revenue of the industry. I mean, to first order, yeah, I mean, that's died, right? It's almost zero compared to what it was. Yeah, so it's gone from 25 billion in 99 to around 5 billion now. And streaming has grown to be 65% of the revenue for the industry. Spotify, Apple Music, and all the others have become extremely successful. I just love Spotify. I just remember the time when I got rid of all my physical music collections and just thought, oh, you know, this is great. I've got access to all the music ever written, almost. And I think it's just been great for consumers in that way. So by the end of 2021, there were 523 million paid music subscription accounts around the world. So still a lot of room for growth, but also, you know, they've done really well to get it to over half a billion paid users. 
And it's interesting what that's done to the industry, I think. So before, in like the CD era, music was very much a discretionary spend, wasn't it? It was something you didn't necessarily need and you just bought a CD when you really liked it or the marketing worked on you. <laughs> Whereas now, I think it's a utility. Absolutely. And I think the disaggregation point is important as well. Because if you're thinking about buying a CD for $15 or £15, that's a pretty difficult decision. You've got to really like that music. Whereas the barrier to listening to a song on Spotify is zero. Anyone can listen to any song once they've got the subscription. And it is kind of like a utility because it just kind of plays music in the background for many people. And I think in terms of subscriptions that people have, their music subscription is probably one of the least likely things to cancel. And it's pretty low. You know, you compare the music subscription cost with something like one of the streaming video channels, and it's, you know, not that unreasonable. And it's got much more choice, much wider than you'd get for, say, Netflix, which doesn't give you all the movies ever made. Yeah, people often compare the TV streaming services with, you know, Spotify, but they're completely different business models, I think. The TV streamers are hit-driven. They need big hits coming through all the time to get people to stay subscribed, whereas people might subscribe to Spotify and stay subscribed because they just listen to the Beatles all day long. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, It's a catalogue business. And I just love services like Soundhound or Shazam, which let you identify a piece of music really easily, and then I can add it to my Spotify catalogue. So, for example, recently I was watching The English, and they had this brilliant track, Into Dust, by Maisie Starr. I didn't know the song. You know, I hadn't heard of Matey Star. Oh, I love that song, yeah. I could immediately add it to my catalogue of songs I like. And what you've done there, Robin, is reinforce my point from earlier, that synchronisation now is so important to sustaining the life of a catalogue. And the best example recently is the song Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, which has really reinvigorated her catalogue. So this is a song from the mid-80s and has taken on a new life just because it was used prominently in the Netflix series Stranger Things. I never really liked that song much in the first place. Although I do like Kate Bush. Yeah, I like Kate Bush. <laughs> but a lot of the game now with managing a legacy catalogue, if you're buying it for 200 million or whatever it is, is trying to sustain its popularity through strategic reissues and a jukebox musical, <laughs> right? Or, yeah, getting it in a prominent series. So there is an active element here. It's not just like you buy a catalogue and sit on the rights and like roll in the royalties, right? You've got to do a bit of maintenance of it. And it's interesting how it works. So, for instance, you wouldn't have thought this, but the song Happy Birthday, right? You always think of it as like a folk classic or whatever that we all sing, owned by the people. But no, it was not owned by the people. No. It was owned by Warner Chapel Music Publishing. And I think up until 2015, when it went out of copyright, and every time it was sung on TV, they would be getting money for that and being paid for it. <laughs> and it's so funny that if you look at some like soap operas where they have such tight budgets and they didn't want to pay to use Happy Birthday in it, there would be like really weird songs. People would be around the birthday cake about to blow out the candles and they'd be singing something completely random like, everyone have a happy birthday. <laughs> they'd just be singing something stupid. <laughs> Feliz Navidad. But now I think it's out of copyright pretty much everywhere. So fill your boots. I mean, in terms of risks to an acquirer of a catalogue, we've mentioned a few, haven't we? The risk of scandals, the market risk. So what if another disruption happens to the music industry, like what happened with piracy? I don't know what it could be, but what if AI suddenly starts writing all the songs? Well, this is an interesting one, actually, because there's a kind of movement, I think, now where they say that an artist should be able to be paid in order to train an AI. 
Because ultimately, this generative AI, all it does is it listens to the distributional statistics of stuff, and then it generates more stuff with the same distribution. So it's really just sampling from a distribution, but it has to be trained. So if they've used your music, they should get some kind of payment for that. That's the argument. It's really an interesting question to me because copyright laws were generally written hundreds of years ago and have been tweaked a little bit since. But this is a kind of whole new thing which doesn't neatly fall into copyright law. I remember Mozart, you wrote a piece of music where you just roll a dice and it would randomly select bars from this standardised piece of music. He did it as a joke, of course, because he was a genius and that was funny to him. But (laughs) this is effectively the same thing, right? Well, I think David Bowie, in one period of his career, wrote lyrics by just sort of picking random lines from different newspapers and magazines. But AI is not that, though. It's not random, is it? It's basically taking the whole genre of popular music, putting it through machine learning algorithms and like popping out hits, boom, boom, boom. Which, to be honest, is what the pop industry (laughs) is anyway. But it just had people doing that rather than a machine. You could have argued Stock Aitken Waterman was that in the 80s. Yeah, and Tin Pan Alley back in the early 20th century, where it was literally a production line, I would describe it. You'd have someone working on the verses, lyrics, someone doing the chorus, a top line writer to write the melody. It would really be like a car production factory where each person would be doing a little bit. Or status quo, where all the songs are the same and they always have been. Harsh on the quo, Robin, (laughs) harsh. (laughs) But yeah, there's a real point there, which is market risk, right? You never quite know what's going to come along. And the music industry has certainly been through many changes over the years. And the other thing is legal risk. So if you're buying a catalogue which is reliant on a few big hits, then you're always vulnerable to someone coming along and says, hang on, I actually wrote that song and they copied it off of me. And you've seen that over and over again. So Ed Sheeran is being sued again over his song Thinking Out Loud with people claiming it was somehow stolen. I think it's Marvin Gaye's estate again (laughs) saying that. And there's a phrase you hear a lot in music, which is where there's a hit, there's a writ. But it's difficult if you write a new song not to be influenced by other people's music. And even unconsciously, you can hear a piece of music and then accidentally churn it up again in your own composition, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I studied music at university and the whole point of popular music is to sort of riff on ideas that are out there. I have a tough time with these copyright cases. The way they tend to work is you sit down a jury who've never written a song in their life and the defendants and the plaintiffs both come in with their own musicologist and one says "Mm, the melody's the same the chords are the same the beat's the same and the other one says no they're different one's in a major key and one's in a minor key as with the blurred lines case (laughs) and the jury just sits there and goes i don't know it's like tossing a coin i don't think it's justice but anyway i've got sidetracked by a bugbear of mine (laughs) the other obvious risk that we've talked about is that interest rates increase so any kind of catalog is going to be worth less if risk-free rates are higher And we've seen that affect some catalogues, haven't we? In fact, pretty much all catalogues. I think it's the same for any cash flow generating business, right? Or asset. Or stocks, in fact. Yeah. Rising interest rates don't tend to be good for anyone in terms of asset valuations. So this whole correlation thing, being uncorrelated from other assets, is kind of not true. If interest rates increase, then it's going to impact these royalty businesses as well. Oh, definitely. But I could kind of see the argument that, oh, it's more like a utility now, which is kind of a defensive sector. It's not uncorrelated, but maybe it's not as spiky as the tech sector is. Yeah, I can see that. It wouldn't fit comfortably in consumer discretionary anymore. At least it's not kind of expensive consumer discretionary. And maybe the final risk I'll mention is around regulation. 
So we've mentioned copyright law. Is that going to keep up with technological changes and protect the value of your catalog? And also the money you receive from Spotify, for instance, is kind of set by law. So in each country, there's a statutory body who says for each stream, you get paid, you know, some fraction of a pence or a cent. And, you know, you're always vulnerable if they don't keep up with inflation, for instance. So shall we talk about a specific example, Romin? And I'm thinking here of Hypnosis, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange with the ticker SONG, S-O-N-G. Now, just as someone who knows absolutely nothing about the company, just looking at it, what's really striking is since August of 2022, there's just a huge shift downwards in the share price. Not only that, but compared to the net asset value for the company, it's at a huge discount. So what is a NAV, first of all? So I'd have thought of NAV as the company's best guess as to the value of their assets. It's going to have some formula to come up with that value, and that's what its net asset value will be. And usually that's quite regulated as to how it's calculated. So they have an external firm that does it for them, and they valued the assets, the catalogue, the music rights, owned by Hypnosis at $2.2 billion. Now, when you're calculating a NAV, there's a few things that are important, right? One, I guess you have to estimate the cash flows way out into the future for this catalogue, how much money is it going to bring through the door? But also you then taper those future cash flows with what's called a discount rate. And that's because the money you earn today is much more valuable than the money you earn in 10 years time. And usually you have some kind of terminal rate. So you assume that it kind of dies down to a fixed rate at some point in future. But what is the discount rate is the key question. And they're using a discount rate of 8.5%. And they've been using that for the last few years. So usually when interest rates rise, you would whack up your discount rate and the present value would fall. That's not what's happened here. So it's kind of like a private equity company where they haven't really marked to market what the true value of the assets is potentially. So Hypnosis said in July that if the discount rate rose by 0.5%, then that would equate to a fall of around 10% in the NAV. So you can see the incentive not to jack up the discount rate, right? (laughs) And we should say legally that (laughs) we're certainly no experts. So, uh, you know, maybe the NAV's right. Yeah, I mean, I tend to look at the market pricing, which is around half of where the NAV is. Really? The discount to NAV is like 48%. Don't often see the discount to NAV get that wide, do you, Roman? No, that's very unusual. That's all I'll say. (laughs) Well, I've got some quotes here, which are in the Financial Times, which are from the company Citroen Cooperman, who's looking at doing the valuation of the hypnosis. And they said, the firm was protecting all of our clients by not raising the discount rate because it meant that valuations will not go down. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's true, right? But is that the right way to do it? You can probably have an argument about that. I mean, she says, we've refreshed our calculation for the current direction of interest rates and the 8.5% discount rate still accommodates for that rise. Anyway, the market's not buying it, right? Yeah, the market kind of disagrees (laughs) if you just look at the share price. So if you look at the background to hypnosis, just quickly, it was founded by Merck Mercuriadis, who's a longtime star agent in the record industries, managed people like Beyonce and Elton John over the years. It was listed on the London Stock Exchange in 2018, and it spent a huge amount of money buying up the catalogues of very successful artists. So they bought a share in Neil Young's catalogue, in Blondie's catalogue, many acts like this. And how did it fuel that growth? Well, it kept going to market and raising equity to go out and then buy a new catalogue. So it was issuing new stock all the time. 
But then what's happened since the fund traded at this huge discount to NAV is it can no longer really tap the market to raise new equity and go and buy new songs because effectively it'd be diluting shareholders and destroying value by doing that. So it's kind of been frozen in time. So they're at a bit of an impasse now because they can't get new capital. I see they did some share buybacks as well, some pretty big share buybacks. How did they do those share buybacks though? Debt funded. So So I think, you know, that's always a worry if you see somebody issuing debt to buy back their own shares. The other thing I think that's worth mentioning is, like we said, in August 2021, they kind of ran out of firepower. So Mercuriadis, the founder of the company, basically did a deal with Blackstone, the private equity company, where they bought out his management company, which was advising the Hypnosis Songs Fund. And separately, they also set up a whole nother fund with $1 billion called Hypnosis Songs Capital, which is not publicly listed and legally nothing to do with Hypnosis Songs. And they started buying copyrights themselves. So they bought Leonard Cohen, Justin Timberlake, Nile Rogers, Nelly Furtado, and they just bought this Justin Bieber catalogue. So if I'm a shareholder in this public version, the Hypnosis Songs Fund, I'm thinking, hmm, they're just spending a lot of money buying stuff for this whole other thing, which is owned by Blackstone. I mean, certainly from a conflict of interest point of view, it's not necessarily the cleanest structure. I'd certainly be worried if I was one of the investors in the original company. Yeah, the Hypnosis Songs Fund, the original company, is listed in the FTSE 250. So we're all shareholders in a little bit of it, probably. So how unusual is this structure for one of these rights companies? I think they're the originator of it. So traditionally, the rights would be packaged up in a major label or major publisher. So Universal Music, Sony's, things like that. I think Hypnosis was probably the first of the pure play royalty companies, right? Where you're just investing in the song rights. Because if you're investing in Sony, right, then you're investing in PlayStation and everything else that Sony does. And is it a model that anybody else has copied? Or is it just kind of a one-off? Well, there are other companies doing similar things. So you've got Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, which has also got a London listing. I mean, it's not the first time private equity has got involved in the music industry. So if we think about Blackstone getting involved here. So I remember when I was at EMI, it was taken over just before I joined by um, Guy Hans's private equity company, Terra Firma. And, you know, he bought it at the wrong time. It all went badly wrong. And that's kind of why EMI was split up and sold off to Universal and Sony in the end. So it seems to be that every decade or so you get private equity getting interested in royalties and thinking, oh, the music industry is wasteful. We can cut costs. We can just sort of sit on the rights and make money. Not that I'm saying that's what hypnosis is doing. They're not just sitting on the rights. But the key question, as with any asset, right, is have they paid too much for the rights they bought? So here's a question for you then, Michael. You often ask me this. Would you buy hypnosis shares? I don't think I would at 6% dividend yield, right? Because that's a pretty high yield. Yeah, but what would you get for high yield credit right now? So high yield would probably be a little bit lower than that. You know, maybe 6% for some bonds, but, you know, that's pretty high. Yeah, well, I think there's potentially greater risk than just with a traditional high yield credit fund. And I don't particularly like the structure they've got where there's, you know, they're kind of competing with themselves and you only own one bit of it. it maybe if the dividend yield got up to 8% and I was confident it wasn't going to be cut, then it would be interesting. So it's a no from you then? I think so. But then I probably do own a bit of them through a passive index tracker, right? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, Mercuriadis has recently talked to shareholders 
and analysts. And he said, we're going to get this fund to number one. Because obviously they don't like seeing this huge discount to NAV. And he actually had a member of Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, come out and played Living on a Prayer to the room of investors and analysts, which I think was quite a nice touch. I bet that was painful. I'd expect that to be a little bit embarrassing. The choice of song is interesting, isn't it? Living on a Prayer, when you're trying to keep going like this. (laughs) That was unfortunate. Whoa, the nav's halfway there. Whoa, we're living on a prayer. (laughs) Now, if you are interested in alternative assets, one place where you can discuss that is on our Slack forum, where we have a specific channel dedicated to alternative assets. So if you want to learn more about becoming a member, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is securitization? Well, it's a pretty simple idea, and we've already discussed it at length in this episode, which is that if there's something which generates future cash flows, you can sell those for an upfront cost nowadays, and those rights go to somebody else in return for that one-off payment. How do you value it? Well, just like you'd value a bond or an equity, you discount those future cash flows based on some discount rate, you price in some risk factor, and that would go into a kind of risk premium, and that would create a heavier discounting and a lower price today. Ideally, you'd have a chunky cash flow stream which lasts a long period of time, potentially forever, which doesn't decay too quickly, if at all, and there'd be very little risk associated with it. So you're not going to get a sudden truncation, an end to those cash flows due to some unforeseen risk. That's the ideal valuation that you'd get. And it's about pooling assets of similar types, right? Can be. And if it's diversified, obviously, there's less risk of a rapid truncation of the cash flows. So ideally, you go for things which were diversified in some way. And so what are some of the major examples then of securitized assets? I guess one of them would be asset-backed securities. So these are, by definition, securitized products, where if you've got things like credit card payments, boat loan payments or student loan payments, you can bundle them up into one huge cash flow structure and then sell it at some price like a bond. Or indeed, there's a music example as well, isn't there, Michael? Well, I think the original example, at least the most prominent one, was the Bowie bonds, where David Bowie packaged up his back catalogue and retained ownership, but sold it as a bond effectively. And I guess that was for money, right? <laughs> he wanted the cash up front. Yeah, it's quite innovative. I think David Bowie's always keen to be innovative, both when it comes to the creative side of things and the commercial side of things. So this was back in 1997 that he did this. He was way ahead of his time. In many ways. So this was an asset-backed security, and it was one of the first of its type. It was actually a $55 million offering at the time, which in today's money looks pretty small. And it had a 10-year maturity and a coupon of 7.9%. So pretty attractive at the time, maybe not so attractive, 97. Yields were much higher, remember. And it's not just music. So there's all sorts of weird things, I think, you can package up as an asset-backed security. I've heard the term esoteric asset-backed securities, which I quite like. So, you know, JK Rowling, if you could have somehow securitized her future royalties, that would have been an interesting one. So book publishing rights could be another thing you could securitize. I've talked previously on another episode about the Greek government securitizing the revenue from some of their museum exhibits. So if you visit the Parthenon, you know, they can securitize that. I mean, some of the weirder things I've come across are peanut syndication payments have been securitized. (laughs) No idea. And 
Churches chicken franchise fees. So I guess franchise fees are the thing you could securitize, right? Because that's a steady stream of income where a restaurant's licensing its brand and all these different outposts are paying a percentage back to the head office, you know, like a royalty payment, basically. So esoteric ABS as a type of ABS is pretty big. It's 121 billion. And the biggest is the franchising or whole business subsector. That's about 33 billion. And then you've got unsecured consumer loans, 25 billion. Aircraft leasing, 22 billion. You know, all of that's fairly standard, I'd say. <laughs> well, you want really weird stuff. Okay, what's the weirdest thing you could securitize then, Robin? Our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you need cash flows, Robin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot that. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.